This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The U.S. Secretary of Agriculture says he wants to know what worries America's farmers and ranchers. So Sonny Perdue is on a tour to meet them. That includes several stops in Colorado. The former Georgia governor spoke to me earlier this morning from Colorado Springs. Secretary, thank you for being with us. Happy to be here, Ryan. Good to be in Colorado. Beautiful day here. We, too, have spoken with ag producers about some of their concerns lately. We've heard concerns about the future of NAFTA because Mexico and Canada are Colorado's largest trading partners. We hear about immigration policy, how it might affect workers in the field. What have you been hearing? I've heard exactly the same thing you have wherever I go. The three major topics, trade, uh, labor, and regulation. And uh, obviously, President Trump is uh, working with China right now with our team. He's instructed our team to uh, make sure China buys more ag products, which could be good. Uh, Obviously, there's concern about NAFTA. We were optimistic at one time and probably not quite so right now because we're running out of time. But uh, once again, NAFTA is very important to ag producers, not only in Colorado, but across the country. So we hope to get uh, a deal restored with NAFTA. Timing is an issue with the elections, and uh, we've got some negotiations going on regarding the H-2A program, which would make it uh, a lot more workable than it is now. So that's kind of the litany of what uh, what I see out here. The H-2A visa program is a seasonal visa often used by farmers and ranchers. Well, lots to run through there. So NAFTA in particular, uh, as I said, Mexico and Canada, formidable trading partners with Colorado. Seems like uh, there's a lot of uncertainty there. I think that causes farmers some consternation. What would you tell them? I think there's legitimate anxiety there about uh, uh, the NAFTA process and the progress. We're telling the president exactly the same thing. He understands, and uh, he's told me the make sure these farmers know that uh, he's going to have their back when it comes to trade. He understands that we export 20 cents out of every farm dollar, and uh, Mexico and uh, Canada are very important. He truly believes that could have got a better deal, but uh, Ambassador Lighthouse is working on that, and we hope to have uh, good news about that soon. Again, the timing is the issue with China, and uh, the EU and the other negotiations are going on. We're running out of time, so we're, we're anxious about that. On Monday, you were in Rocky Ford visiting Hiracata Farms, run by Michael Hiracata. He grows cantaloupe, watermelon, honeydew. Uh, We actually spoke with him last year, and he told us most of his workers come from Mexico through the H-2A visa program, which we've mentioned. He says he just can't find local workers, and he had this message for President Trump. In this area, there's not very many, and some of the workers around here, um, it's hard work. Some people won't last the whole day. Very, very rarely do they last more than a week because, like I said, it's, it's very hard work. This, this country needs workers that are willing to work and do the work that is, some people aren't willing to do in, in America. I hope that he streamlines the H-2A program and we get a, get a better program to work with. That's a very timely quote. We talked to Michael and his family exactly about those things yesterday, and uh, the young uh, woman attorney who's working with us on uh, uh, labor issues was with me, Christy Boswell, and uh, she's been in negotiations with the Department of Labor, Homeland Security, and Department of State in order to streamline this process. It's very cumbersome, very difficult to for farmers, particularly smaller farmers, to uh, navigate the process. So we're hoping to 
streamline that process through regulatory issues uh, first, but then hopefully with uh, new immigration law, the president wants a, uh, a legitimate legal farm workforce, and we hope to be able to get that where it's even better after that. But the H-2A program right now is very difficult to navigate, and uh, we had a great conversation with Michael and his farmer there. Fine family and, and great producers. What's an example of a change that you could make to the H-2A program to make it better? One of the changes that we've discussed and uh, have agreed upon internally in our agency is a portal from USDA, such as on our website, farmers.gov, where the farmer would go there and place his application, and then that application would be dispersed, almost like TurboTax, into the Department of Labor, Department of Homeland Security, and Department of State all at one time, the same information on the same application, and uh, fulfill the requirements there without having to fill out paper applications to each of those agencies and then to wait for a while to know whether they've been received or not. What do you think will happen to the number of H-2A visas, their availability? Well, I think, again, that uh, that's going to require a comprehensive immigration bill. Chairman Goodlatte, Judiciary and House, has a bill that would cap them at 500000 Most people don't think that's enough, but if the program is effective, Michael is exactly right. We've got statistics that show that out of 20,000 openings, we have domestic applications of less than 50. And usually, as he said, they don't stay very long. So uh, we have a real huge demand, and we uh, actually going to get down to either importing this uh, legal farm labor or importing our food. Michael Hiracata's farm is in Otero County on Colorado's southeastern plains, and they're in extreme drought. Whether extremes are expected to become more common because of climate change, uh, the Trump administration has rolled back a lot of the previous White House's efforts to reverse climate change. How concerned are you about how climate affects farmers and ranchers? Climate has always affected farming. I'm I'm a farm boy. Uh, I can remember in 1954, a major drought in middle Georgia almost put my father out of business. In 1994, a major flood put many of our customers at jeopardy. Climate change has always been an issue. The president has not rolled out back any issues that reflect on how we respond to climate change and the things we can do. It just is not at the forefront of uh, being the uh, uh, the cause of these things that uh, we're still doing the things agriculturally. Uh, Michael had a great example of using plastic to conserve water. He's a very efficient use of water on that farm, using in a way cover crops and other things and leaving uh, no-till planting. Those types of things are still tactics that farmers are using to deal with the vagaries of weather. Uh, but it sounds like you dispute the notion that people are contributing to climate change. Well, that's not really the issue. That's not really the issue of what the cause is. It's what do we do about it? And that's what I'm telling you is that we're doing everything we can uh, as a good uh, cover crops, uh, no-till farming, and efficient use of water that would make sense uh, over those kind of things. Another stop for you in Colorado is with the folks at Food Maven in Colorado Springs, which sees the huge amounts of wasted food in this country, maybe because it's slightly imperfect, and finds a market for it, often at a discount. Why did you want to meet with Food Maven? Well, because when we uh, leave multiple millions and billions of dollars of food unharvested because they're imperfect and they're not going to be marketable through our retail chains, Maven has an interesting concept of recovering this food, the food waste. We're 
very interested in food waste and how we can uh, feed more people by using food better, using food more efficiently, whether it's recovering food that's served in a healthy, sanitary, and safe way, whether we are recovering uh, harvests that uh, may be imperfect. But uh, Food Maven has an interesting uh, entrepreneurial concept that I want to learn more about, looking for ideas of how USDA can encourage a more efficient use of our food so we can feed more people more efficiently. You see a lot of waste as well in the food supply. We do indeed. There, there's no doubt. And, and many people, and I think statistics bear out that it's probably 30 to 40 percent of the food supply. And if you've gone to restaurants lately and uh, seen the waste there, uh, gone to schools and see the waste there. We were in Las Vegas a few months ago and saw where there was a food recovery process there that went to animals. But we think there are many ways, and Food Maven may be one of those ways that we can, uh, again, recover food that may not have been used, food going out of date, going to food banks. And we just need a strategic approach to how we can use food better. And that, again, you talked about the climate. That helps uh, lower the footprint. And if we can use more and uh, we have to produce less, then that's helpful. Secretary, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Ryan. Sonny Perdue, U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. He's in Colorado on a Back to the Roots tour. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This next story is about addiction. You hear a lot about that these days with the opioid crisis, but this is not a story of despair. Over the weekend, there was a special graduation at CU Boulder. Nine students graduated sober. They're part of CU's Collegiate Recovery Center, which supports students in recovery and those who want to be drug and alcohol-free. Not necessarily easy, given CU's reputation as a party school. Jake Fossum joins me. He's 22 and took part in the graduation ceremony. Jake, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I understand you were eight months sober when you arrived at CU last mm-hmm. August. Uh, but first off, tell us about when you started using and, and what were you using? So I would say that alcohol was my main drug of choice. And that started in high school around the time I was 15 or so. Um, and it wasn't until I got into college that my addiction really took off. And there was a lot of traumas, a lot of things that happened that kind of uh, facilitated my destruction. But alcohol was at the centerpiece of that. What do you think it was about alcohol that was so attractive to you? Uh, I use it as a crutch for social anxiety. I remember some of the first times that I drank. Um, people liked me when I was intoxicated. And so I realized, oh, like... This is a way for people to like me. This is a way I can connect with others. And so I started to depend on that for a way of connecting with other people. I understand that there's some alcoholism in your family, so there's a bit of a family history. But was Mm -hmm. there something maybe about the high school environment and then the college environment? Uh, I think at first you were at Virginia Tech. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do those environments um, maybe lead you to drink more? Or is there something about them that made you want to escape? Yeah, absolutely. I think especially in large public schools, when you have something like 30,000 students, um, there's this expectation that you'll have 30,000 friends, and that's not the case. It can be really easy to isolate 
when you don't establish like a secure friend group right away. And so that was my case in that I just felt really isolated uh, my freshman year of college. And so I turned to alcohol as a way to sort of cope with that. And it became my my source of connection. Did it wind up connecting you to people or did it leave you just as isolated? Uh, In many ways, it did connect me with people. I won't say that like alcohol had uh, 100% negative effects. It definitely was overwhelmingly negative, but there was a reason that I kept using it. And originally it was because it allowed me to uh, socialize and have fun, but as it my use increased, it became more of a dependency issue. I understand you got a DUI your freshman year. Mm-hmm. You were suspended, I think spent a night in jail. Yes. Then it, yeah. was, it was back to school. And in the summer of 2016, after a night of heavy drinking, you injured your back landed in the hospital, and eventually became hooked on pain medication. Yes, I wouldn't say that. I definitely abused pain medication. I abused alcohol more so um, as a form of self-medication after that instance. Um, And I made the decision after that happened, that was around July of 2016, to go back to school that fall semester, which I shouldn't have done. And I was restricted from doing a lot of physical activity, so I spent a lot of time pretty much just in my room, not able to do many things. And so I also turned 21 around the same time and just started drinking daily just to numb the pain. Becoming 21 was something of a free-for-all because it was legal then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was state-sanctioned for you to drink. Yeah, absolutely. You went into detox and rehab eventually. Mm -hmm. And your mom, I think, found out about CU Boulder's Collegiate Recovery Center. Yeah, absolutely. She had... uh, show me a letter that she had sent the program manager. Uh, I was in rehab on Christmas Day, um, and she had sent this email just explaining my story, and Sam Randall, the program manager, emailed back saying that I sounded great for the program. And that really gave me like this incredible drive just to keep going in my sobriety and recovery because one of my greatest fears was that I wouldn't be able to continue my education. Mm. Yeah. Did you also fear that returning to a college environment, though, might affect your sobriety? Absolutely. But, I mean, that's what the center provides for us, is it provides a structure to not necessarily combat, but just provide support in an environment that could be seen as high risk. That could be seen as high risk. I I think the subtext of that is CU Boulder has a reputation uh, for being a party school. Mm -hmm. Had you heard of that reputation? I had heard of that reputation before. And so what did you think about the choice of CU Boulder? I think any college, any place where you get a conglomeration of 30,000 kids Mm -hmm. is going to have some substance use. You don't think that's exclusive by any means to that campus? No, no, not at all. You you talked about the Collegiate Recovery Center having support for you. What did that look like on a a daily basis? What do you think was most helpful to keep sober? Um, I think, so they... The CRC offers a lot of uh, support services. They offer, like, recovery coaching, so this kind of one-on-one individual mentorship, which is extremely helpful. And one of the most important things is having these group meetings where we can really share with other people who are going through the same issues and just kind of um, discuss them together. And who might be under the same pressures. Yeah, absolutely. Both academically and maybe socially as well. Yeah. It's, It's really refreshing to see other people who are young and in recovery and trying to better themselves, and that is actually a normal thing to do. Was that Christmas in detox? Was that rock bottom? Uh, So I was in inpatient rehab at that time. Ah. The detox was uh, before that, around December 15th, 2016. And that's when I say I hit hit rock bottom. I was in a behavioral health unit of a 
psychiatric hospital. And I don't know, I did just not really realized how I had gotten there, realized that something had to change. And there was this moment uh, when a woman came in and taught us mindfulness meditation that I really had this kind of switch flip. And I was like, I do not want to live this way anymore. And since then, that's kind of been my drive towards getting better. Do you still meditate? Yeah, absolutely. It's been a crucial part of my recovery. Well, I want to bring in Daniel Conroy. He directs CU's Collegiate Recovery Center. I'll say that it's in its fifth year. It includes as well a sober dorm. I think you were actually a part of that as well, Jake. Yes, I'm currently. I'll talk to you a little bit more about that in a bit. But uh, Daniel, what, what more would you say about how the Collegiate Recovery Center supports students? And does it do so successfully? Yeah, very, very successfully, actually. I mean, I think even surprising to us who were part of starting it because what we didn't anticipate was the number of students who actually would make the University of Colorado Colorado a destination school to support the recovery. I think that was a very new narrative. Uh, And... You know, it, it, it's really about the community. It's really about, you know, we have a, a group of peers there and, and we as staff, Sam and I, we, we support them certainly through coaching and, and various types of one-on-one connection. But it's really about the, the, the group of students themselves who support one another. And so I think the first time I was on your program, I think we had three people in a small dorm. And, and now we have, you know, 16 beds and two buildings uh, down by the creek. And, you know, they barbecue together and they hang out. It's, it's, um, it's really normalizing recovery. You know, we, those of us in recovery really see it as normal. We don't see mm-hmm. it as, as a, a fractioned part of society, you know. so How important it is not to feel alone yeah. and, and not to feel isolated. Exactly. Speaking to the isolation that mm-hmm. I think Jake exactly right. mentioned earlier. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the dorm. So there are those who choose to uh, live in that space, and how does that space support sobriety? Yeah, well, uh, we, we've been very, very fortunate. The university has been incredibly supportive in providing space for us. So we have right now uh, two eight-bed dorms that are side-by-side down uh, on campus, the lower part of campus, and students live there. And, you know, they the, it's substance-free. Most are in recovery. Um, some people live there just because they don't want to use substances. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a really amazing community. They uh, send out memes to each other on a regular basis, and oh, I need uh, a I need a meme example. Oh, like what? Oh yeah, go ahead, Jake. I'm not or, sure I can provide a meme example off the top of my head. <laughs> no, okay. But. Well, it's just or the you know it might one might look like recovery look like you know, and then they've got somebody being goofy, or we've okay. got you know it's it's hard to do a meme on the radio. Yes, that's true. <laughs> but they're funny and they're hilarious, and they'll go on and on. But um, yeah, I mean it's it's really. It's unbelievably normal. It's abnormal in the situation that it's new, but it's it's to us it's very normal. Now, how normal or abnormal is it among colleges and universities in this country to have something this extensive and to have perhaps even uh, residential life attached to it? I, I think uh, at the CUCRC, we've we've grown pretty quickly. I think that's abnormal. I think we've had great support from the administration. That's a bit abnormal. But there's about two hundred or more uh, collegiate recovery programs all over the country now. Uh, the, Do there need to be more? 
Well, I believe so. I believe that we need to, you know, we, we look at substance use disorders like we do, you know, diabetes or other health concerns. Um, so given that, uh, I can't imagine that someone would have cancer or, you know, or diabetes and we wouldn't say, let's do all we can to support them in their health. And that's sort of how we view it. You've developed uh, something of a successful model. It sounds like it's CU Boulder. Is it one you are hoping to spread yourself? In other words, are you meeting with other schools? We to are. Maybe we even are. in Colorado. Yeah, we are. We've met with the folks at DU who have a program going now. Um, Colorado State has a program that's that's up and going. Um, Sam Randall, who's our program manager, has been incredibly progressive. She sat on the board of, of the ARHE, which is kind of the governing body for collegiate recovery programs, the Mountain State Rep. So any schools that ever have any questions, we, we, we definitely support them. We're talking about recovery in a college, in a university environment. And uh, Jake Fossum, I want to note that you have kept yourself busy this past year, worked as a pizza delivery man on, on <laughs> yes, Saturday indeed. nights. Yeah. Uh, what was way. that like? <laughs> that sounds like a, a tempting environment, potentially. It could be. Um, I've always liked working along with uh, doing my academics. I spent in between my time at Virginia Tech treatment and coming out here to CU Boulder, I spent uh, about eight months just working. Um, so it's been really par- important part of my recovery to have some form of employment. Why is that important to recovery for you? Uh, it's a way of just being financially independent. And that sort of uh, independence is something I've really craved in my recovery. It's just kind of bettering myself in all the ways I can. Daniel, who doesn't succeed in these programs? Well, people who don't want to be there. I mean, I think that that's, that's the best way I could say it. I, the, and are there students you've seen that, that fit that category? Well, they're people who aren't ready. You know, they might come in and we get a lot of walk-ins. People will come in and say, you know, I just kind of want to know what this recovery thing's about. I want to know it's here if I need it. Um, but people who commit to the program, people who want to be part of it, um, who have already decided and made that choice that uh, I want to be in recovery, our success rate's pretty remarkable, actually. What is it? It's right around 94%. Oh, my goodness. And, and the people who have had a recurrence of use, most of them have returned to a life of recovery because of their contact with the center. Jake, are there misperceptions people have about those who struggle with drugs and alcohol? Or are they perhaps surprised that young people that uh, struggle with this? That do, do they think of it more as... Like an older person's disease. Absolutely. Uh-huh. I mean, I still think there's an incredible stigma towards addiction and that um, addiction in young people is often seen as just like a part of growing up. Right. That's just the party culture. Yeah. But when it actually becomes a problem, it's often harder for younger people to get into sobriety just because maybe all their friends are still continuing to use. And so it can be a lot more difficult to get sober. Do you feel yourself in some ways walled off from the rest of school? Or I do, used are to. You, you do used to. I, I don't anymore. I used to think of it as um, being sober made me separate from other people. Uh-huh. But now it's just one aspect of my identity. I mean, my recovery encompasses all aspects of my life. But, I mean, I'm still just the same person underneath. I just happen to be sober. What's next, Jake Fossum, for you? Uh, next, I'm planning on working in, for Denver, uh, the city of Denver, this summer, um, continuing my education and continuing my recovery. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thanks so much for having us. That is Jake Fossum, who will actually graduate next fall from CU Boulder, though he already walked in the sober graduation. We also heard from Daniel Conroy, director of the University of Colorado Collegiate Recovery Center. 
Denver's top elected officials recently argued they should not have to disclose expensive travel they receive from the airport, hundreds of thousands of dollars in mostly business class airfare. But the city's ethics board wasn't buying it and says accepting large gifts from city agencies shouldn't be allowed. CPR's Ben Marcus explains. Ads for business class seats make clear that this is luxury. Wonderful cuisine, seats that become beds. Of course, this comes with a steep cost. But for city leaders, it's a valuable fringe benefit. In any business and in any city, it's necessary to travel. That's city councilman Kevin Flynn. He flew business class last year for airport business. The seat cost $10,000. He went to Amsterdam and London, touring security systems. Getting up at 5 in the morning each day and constantly booked from end to end. It was anything but a pleasure trip. It was a business trip. Five other city council members took a similar trip, organized and paid for by Denver International Airport, ahead of a series of city council votes to approve billions of dollars in airport construction contracts. Flynn maintains that comfortable business class seats didn't sway votes. Others aren't so sure. I'd be grateful if someone gave that to me. Luis Turo is the former director of Colorado Ethics Watch. He agrees with a recent Denver Board of Ethics opinion. It found that the airport and other city agencies can influence city council and the mayor's office. So gifts from those agencies cannot exceed $300 in a year. The city policy is designed to avoid the appearance of impropriety. Now, in an ideal world... The council members and the mayor, whoever else, would be able to set that aside and govern the airport without any favoritism. But the point of an ethics rule is to make sure that there is no temptation. But the question is, if DIA is just an arm of the city, are flights provided by the airport gifts? Not even the Board of Ethics was totally clear on that. Still, CPR News requested receipts from the airport through the state's open records law. It shows more than $400,000 in travel given to the mayor's office and city council, mostly business class overseas flights since 2013. The number of trips was news to city councilman Rafael Espinoza. How many business class flights have you been offered? Uh, since in office, uh, exactly zero. <laughs> zero business and, and not to sound like sour grapes, but zero coach as well. I'll just be honest. Which Espinoza says might be because of his criticism of the mayor and airport management. The airport has sole discretion on who it takes on trips. And it's the mayor's office that gets the most business class flights from DIA. Mayor Michael Hancock alone took eight trips, total cost $77,000. In a statement, the mayor's office said these trips are not gifts, they're important airport business. But if Hancock and others had paid for that travel from the city budget, they'd have had to fly coach in most cases. Espinoza says that's just fine for elected officials. This is not a hard life, uh, and sitting down in a plane also is not a hard life. But officials at Denver International Airport contend that long overseas trips can be challenging, and that's why the airport has its own set of rules allowing employees to upgrade to business class. Stacy Stegman, an airport spokesperson, says that applies to Denver elected officials, too. When they travel with us, they're traveling for airport business, and we want them to be fresh and be in the same place as us. And Stegman says having elected officials along for the ride helps to promote the airport internationally. Also, the airport is not funded by taxpayer dollars, so it can write more generous travel rules that wouldn't be allowed by other city agencies or other city employees. But I think the other difference in it is that these trips are all justified. They're all done for airport business purposes. And 
we're very upfront about that. It's not anything new. It's been in policy for many, many years. Since 2010, to be exact, without scrutiny until now, according to Councilman Rafael Espinoza. Had the, somebody bothered to ask this question, the rules would have been changed around it or it never would have occurred. Despite the recent Board of Ethics ruling, the mayor and others took a business-class airport-paid trip to Paris last month. The Board of Ethics says it can't say if that was unethical unless somebody files a complaint with them. In the meantime, Councilman Kevin Flynn plans to propose an amendment to the city's ethics code to explicitly allow the trips, but require that they're reported on disclosure forms. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Near Winter Park tomorrow, they'll step into waders and big boots for a celebration on the Fraser River. Water managers and environmentalists are excited about a mile-long stretch that's been brought back to life. CPR's Nathaniel Miner visited the area before the restoration and learned it's part of a larger plan to divert more water to the Front Range. Environmentalists were deeply divided over whether it was the right compromise to make. This story, I'm going to tell you, is about a deal some environmental groups made with Denver Water over a river. Uh, It's weird because usually environmental groups in Denver Water fight over water. uh, But in this case, most of the conflict is actually among environmentalists. Why would environmentalists be arguing amongst themselves? Because, well, environmentalists more or less agree on their ultimate goal. They all want to protect and restore the environment. Uh, The strategies they use are all very different. And the big question that divides them is, when do we compromise? You were in Grand County earlier this fall where the issue of compromise is really playing out. Yeah. Uh, Grand County is a kind of stupidly beautiful part of the state. (laughs) Uh, At the heart of the county is the Fraser River. It tumbles down the mountains near Winter Park and flattens out. But the Fraser River is not doing great. Why? Uh, Because there's not enough water in it. Where did the water go? Uh, Probably to you and me, Uh, Denver water pulls out about 60% of the water and pipes it through the Continental Divide to Gross Reservoir up by Boulder. And now they want to pull even more water out. Why? People keep moving to the front range. Denver water wants to beef up its resources. Now, their conservation efforts have been a big success. Per capita water use is down in recent years. But the agency says it still needs more capacity. These diversion plans usually cause huge fights between water managers who want the water and environmentalists who want to protect the rivers. Uh, But this case feels different. Yeah. uh, For the first time that anyone can remember, big environmental groups are supporting a Denver water diversion plan. Why would environmental groups support diversion? Uh, It appears that Denver water has gotten much better at reaching out to environmental groups and people who live near where they're taking this water. They've always paid for work to offset some of the harm their projects do to the environment, but it was kind of just something they had to do to get their permits. But now they're part of this group called Learning by Doing. It's Grand County officials, water managers, and environmentalists who all work together on a monthly basis. And these are normally people who are at odds with each other. Yeah, exactly. And here's the key part. Uh, Denver Water has to be part of this group to get the permits they need to pull more water out of the Fraser. Okay. Any other, I don't know, motivations for Denver Water here? So one thing I heard a lot is that their customers are getting savvy about where the water's coming from. Uh, So they're putting pressure on Denver Water to take care of the rivers. And one Denver Water scientist, Kevin Urey, uh, told me that that message is getting through. 
we all choose to recreate up in Grand County and Summit County and other areas, and, and uh, this is our playground too. He told me new leadership puts a big emphasis on protecting the environment. But environmentalists still don't want more water taken out of the Fraser. No. At a very basic level, all the conservationists I talk with want more water in the rivers. But I was surprised by how much they disagreed on what to do about Denver Water's plan. So, for the rest of this story, I'm going to introduce you to three different conservationists. Well, who are we going to meet first? Let's start with Trout Unlimited. Uh, They're a part of the Learning by Doing group up in Grand County. And it's quite a thing for Trout Unlimited to support a diversion plan, especially when you meet their guy in Grand County. He's watched the river dwindle and get warmer as more water's pulled out of it. For years, Kirk Clanky blamed that on the Front Range. I guess I was a little radical because I urinated in diversion ditches. That's about all I knew to do. Um, I've matured quite a bit since then. Wait, did he just say that he used to pee in our water to get back at the populated areas of the state? Yeah, he did say that. But as he says, he grew up. Uh, The real turning point was when he got involved with Trout Unlimited. Trout Unlimited negotiated with Denver Water to get the city utility to help pay for some work on the Fraser to make it healthier. One big project will dig a channel in the river. You see, when flows are low, like they were in the fall, the river is really shallow as it stretches across its native bed. So the new channel will allow the river to recede and stay deeper. Clanky prides himself as being a realist. The front range is still growing, and water managers there own water rights that they'll use with or without his blessing. And that kind of makes sense. I mean, it seems like a practical way of taking on the issue of a thirsty front range and dwindling rivers in the West. Yeah, that was my initial thought, too. But I got a feeling when I was reporting in Grand County that there was another side to the story. I want to introduce you now to someone who's not happy with the Fraser River Diversion Plan. Okay. That person is Jen Pels with Wild Earth Guardians. known for their lawsuits. That's right. They've sued the federal government over haze in western Colorado, and their tactics seem to work. Yeah, that haze lawsuit ended in an agreement where a coal mine and a coal-fired power plant south of Grand Junction will shut down in the next six years. But Pels's work is focused on rivers. She wanted to work at Guardians because, like she says, the environment comes first. We're willing to go out on a limb. We're willing to not be liked. Her point is that if the Fraser River is going to be saved, it'll happen by letting more water back into the river, not by taking more out. But people and their lawns are still thirsty. Yeah, and on top of that, the Colorado Constitution has historically protected the right to divert water. It sounds like Wild Earth Guardians has an uphill battle if they want to stop this diversion project on the Fraser River. Uh Uh-huh. Pell says they, and another group called Save the Colorado, are considering litigation once final permits are approved, and that could happen in 2018. Pels has decided that over the long run, these methods are what will make a difference. And I don't want to have to explain to my kids that I gave up the fight for this river that is the namesake of our state, the state they were born in, because I was just willing to compromise. Yeah, we may not win. But damn, we're going to try. I was really surprised to see the level of disagreement within a community that ultimately wants the same things. So I talked with a third environmentalist to help me figure this out. Matt Rice is with American Rivers, and he says that when Jen Pels' group files a lawsuit and makes a bunch of people mad, they push the whole conversation to the left. And so even though they don't ultimately get a seat at the table, 
They make room for another group to step in and talk with state regulators. But there's a downside. People don't forget lawsuits, and they can lump environmentalists together. Trout Unlimited is no different than us, and you know, so on and so forth. And I think that has the potential to undermine the progress we're making on the center-right side because of very real good advocacy on the left. So American Rivers has really found room to maneuver in the environmental landscape. Uh, I'm curious, Nate, what's your takeaway from all this? The lesson I learned is that all the different players posture and position themselves off one another. From Denver Water's perspective, they're much more willing to work with groups open to compromise like a Trout Unlimited. And all these dynamics can really strain relationships. But on the other hand, they can also open some doors. That is CPR's Nathaniel Miner speaking with me after his visit to the Fraser River near Winter Park in 2016. The expansion of Gross Reservoir is still working its way through the regulatory process. Wild Earth Guardians and other environmental groups are keeping an eye on it and may sue. They say no more water should be taken from the Colorado River Basin, especially given the dry conditions this year. Meanwhile, the Fraser River Rehabilitation Project officially opens to the public tomorrow. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's probably one of the worst art restorations ever. In 2012, a Spanish woman named Cecilia Jimenez tried to restore a fresco of Jesus. He wound up looking more like Fozzie Bear. The image went viral and even inspired a sketch on SNL. I know ruin a feast. Here, it look good. Why everybody's so mad at me? Everybody's so angry. They're in my church. It's a Jesus he owned. He fought apart at feast. Now I want my money. I have to buy a wine. <laughs> well, Jimenez's story is now an opera. In my dream, I was brazen, proud, but my strength has vanished. My eyesight's so That's an aria from Behold the Man. Andrew Flack is the librettist. He lives in Centennial, south of Denver, and Paul Fowler of Boulder is the composer. The opera premiered in 2016 in Borja, Spain, the very town where this all took place. Now it's making its stateside debut this week at the Arizona State University School of Music. Let's listen back to my conversation with its creators. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Hi there. Thank you so much. So in August 2012, you read the headline, Andrew, Elderly Woman Destroys 19th Century Spanish Fresco in Botched Restoration. Uh, Again, this was in that small northeastern Spanish town of Borja. And you say you knew instantly this would make a great opera. What about it screamed opera to you? Well, it had all the elements, you know, love, honor, redemption. It just had the, the, and the conflict. You know, when this happened, she was taken to task internationally. There were memes created that flew all over the world. And she was really ridiculed, you know, and, and, and put her into a, st- a real funk. I mean, she was really in, de- in depression for months. But I saw that there would, could be a happy ending. I saw that there was a silver lining. And Paul had been asking me for years to come up with an idea for an opera. He's from the opera world. I'm mm. not. And Paul, when Andrew came to you with this idea, what did you think? Oh, I thought it was great. Um, not only for its operatic qualities, but also we have all these sort of inherent fights that we see in the modern world between faith and belief and 
ridicule and, you know, the economic times were really hard at the time. And to see, you know, the beginnings of a tiny little economic engine out of something completely ridiculous, those are all really attractive contemporary themes that we don't get to see in opera a lot. Because this little Spanish town that, you know, few had heard of outside of Borja became something of a destination after the story went viral. Absolutely. Yeah. There have been 150,000 people that came through there in the first two years. To see her botched restoration. Yes. And have their picture taken with it. You know, age of selfies here. <laughs> and selfie sticks. They haven't unrestored it, that is to say. No, not at all. In fact, there was some word about it. At first, they, they really wanted to sweep it under the rug. They were either going to cover it. Or, you know, they, they, the towns really didn't know what to do with it at first. But no, they haven't now. And it's, it's, uh, they have it behind plexiglass and, and it's very much on display. There was even a change.org petition that came up right away saying, don't change it, don't change it. Andrew, you were listing some of the qualities that make it a good opera. And you said love. Mm-hmm. How does love enter the picture? Well, it's her, her faith. I mean, it's really her love of God that provided the stability for for Cecilia not to panic in this situation. She was depressed. She did feel horrible that she had made this this botched work. But at the same time, she stayed with her faith. She thought if she just sits with it and, you know, God has a plan for her. And it worked out for the best. It's, it's kind of that idea that your disaster can also be your miracle. Hmm. Let's hear more of her first aria titled, It's Faith That Guides My Brush. I enjoy She sings, I'm not that accomplished, not like Martinez. That's Elias Garcia Martinez, the Fresco's original artist. So you, in 2013, Drew, actually traveled to Borja to meet Cecilia. And I understand you had most of the text for this aria already written. How much did you change it after meeting her? I spent two hours with her the first day. And she was telling me, she had never read it. She was giving me lines that I had already written. The, about Martinez, that, that very line I had written, but then she told me that same line when I was in her presence. Huh. That I didn't, you know, she was kind of embarrassed that she didn't have an art degree, but, you know, she wasn't as accomplished as Martinez. And, you know, feeling a little bit uh, badly about that, but I had written that line and then she repeated it to me. Her restoration looked very different from the original Ecce Homo, Latin for Behold the Man. One journalist described uh, her take as looking more like a hairy monkey rather than Christ the Savior. Many said she ruined it. Um, but when you spoke with her, what was her take on what, on the image that emerged? By that time, Ryan, she thought it was a miracle. She, I said, what do you think of this now? She said, well, I think he's kind of cute. <laughs> and I said, well, what else? But I mean, what do you think about this whole process? Here you've been ridiculed and you've been made fun of around the world, but, but now tourists are coming and you've helped revive the town. And, and what do you think of all this? And she said, well, I, I, I have to believe it's a miracle. Huh. It became an Internet sensation for sure. And the song Come Get Show Eche mm-hmm. is about how Borja indeed gets the world's attention. Get show, get show, get show, get show, get show. 
I don't know what it is. I could listen to that song all day, and it's been stuck in my head since I've heard it. There are pop influences. There's like one song that's kind of Lady Gaga-esque, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and Paul, really, you have drawn on Gregorian chants, Spanish opera, Renaissance motets, just to name a few. How do you make all those different inspirations sound cohesive? Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> maybe <laughs> that's an you don't interesting know the question. Answer. I mean, the he beauty, the beauty of this piece and the internet as a backdrop is that the internet is all about pluralism in music. You know, you can listen to anything from anywhere, from any time, kind oh. of at the touch of a button. And one of the things I was attracted to musically about this piece was how that could happen in an opera. How we could bring in, you know, music from all over and still have opera singers singing it. And you know, music's like a big home that can suit a whole lot of people. So in this way, it's hard to break music. So why not explore where it can go? That's so cool. So the the music being reflective of the democratizing force of the Internet, which is how this story spread around the world. When I heard that track, I thought a little bit about Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoats. Sure. You know, because there's like, there's like, you know, biblical ties and it, it makes hip, you know, mm-hmm. the faith. What do you What do you think? Well, I, I don't. I think we're making hip the feeling of faith, not necessarily promoting a faith. In a way, we're trying to make hip opera. You know, out of this ridicule came an incredible amount of creativity. It's it's our judgment that determines whether it be good or bad creativity. Mm-hmm. But but we're, we're playing the same card. You know, out of this crazy story, we can have all of this different music, and we can explore these themes that are still contemporary, like faith. Um, but, you know, often challenged by the very medium that made the story famous, which is the Internet. So it's it's a great opportunity to kind of play with new materials within an old tradition. You are listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And maybe you remember a few years ago this story out of Spain that went viral. It was about a fresco in the town of Borja that had been redone by a woman with not, you know, um, any artistic training. And she was mocked, she was ridiculed for her restoration of the Christ figure in this fresco. We're speaking with two Coloradans who turned this story, if you can believe it, into an opera. And um, Andrew, I I guess you decided to make two versions, one in Spanish, one in English. We did. We started, of course, in English. And uh, about halfway through, we realized that, hey, you know, our, our Really, our first primary goal here is to have it performed in the town where it's set. We think that's just so exciting that, you know, we're, we're creating this little valentine for them. Well, it better be in Spanish so they can, they can perform it and understand it. So, yes, we have. We've, uh, we've translated the work into Spanish. So now we have two productions. We have a, we'll have an English production and a Spanish production. But, of course, it's not just as easy as plugging it into Google Translate. <laughs> No. We tried. It doesn't work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Syllables differ and rhymes differ. So was it like writing a new opera? Um, not necessarily the music, although we do have to adapt the music so that the Spanish can feel as um, smooth and flowing natural. as the English does and as natural to, to speech. So we've worked with 
uh, several people actually around bringing the translation in. Drew, do you want to talk about Hector? Mm. Yeah, we have a, a, a wonderful Spanish man that, that translates. Um, the translation has really been more painstaking than I ever thought. I, I've never done anything like this before. Yeah. And it's been incredibly precise. And Paul because he's the perfectionist that he is, it must be absolutely right on. I thought our translator was a, had that same ability, and he does, but Paul takes it to the next level. Was there a word that was particularly, or a concept that was particularly difficult to, to convey? Um, concepts less so, more um, some of the things that are really tied to the music, like that come get yo eche line is something that only really makes sense. In English? In English, because it doesn't, I mean... It's ridiculous, but getcho eche isn't even, I mean, but what's fun it's about it is It's not even English. The, yeah, what's fun about it is like the parallelism of the ch sound in getcho eche. And, right, so how did you solve that in Spanish? Um, you know, our, our translator found found a line. He says, uh, compren suecte, which is the same as come getcho eche, and it doesn't quite ring the same way, but it's still fun and funky. Say it again. Compren suecte. Compren suecte. Oh boy, that is not easy to say. Gentlemen, gracias. Thanks for being with us. Indeed, thank you. Mm. Coloradans Andrew Flack and Paul Fowler created Behold the Man. It premieres stateside this week at Arizona State University. This is CPR News.